Welcome to the Dr. Gabrielle Lyon Show, where I believe a healthy world is based on transparent conversations. In today's episode, I sit down with Doug Katchigen. He is a physical therapist and CEO, co-founder of Resilient Performance Systems. Now, Doug is amazing. Before beginning his sports medicine practice, Doug was a para-rescuman in the U.S. Air Force. He deployed throughout the world to help provide technical rescue capabilities and emergency medical care in the U.S. and allied forces. He also was selected as one of the U.S. Air Force's Outstanding Airmen of the Year in 2015. Doug really has a level of expertise that is unparalleled in a way that he has physical experience, not only as a therapist. So he went to Brown for his undergraduate, then he went to physical therapy school at Columbia, in addition to being a pararescue man, um, really, really profound. So basically, what does this mean for you? It means that he's seen all kinds of extremes. And we learn a lot from extremes because the answer truly oftentimes lies in the middle. In this episode, we talk about what you need to do for longevity, what you need to do, the core foundational practices that need to happen in a very, very busy world. Also, we talk about risk mitigation, risk mitigation in wellness and in health, and what does that look like over the span of one's life. He gives some very practical insight. In addition, we hear a little bit about Doug's own story and the way in which he practices physical therapy and all of the domains of fitness. I really hope you enjoy this podcast. If you have a moment and want to push this forward, please rate, subscribe, review, share it with a friend, share it with a frenemy, anybody that you would like. I truly appreciate your support. Let's dive in. Thank you to One Farm for sponsoring this episode of the show. And listen, if you are having trouble sleeping, it's time to try something new. One Farm have made a new sleep gummy. It's their superfood gummy. It's formulated with botanicals and herbal extracts designed to calm the mind, promote rest without melatonin. And here's why I love this product. Melatonin, at least from what I've seen in my clinical experience, has the potential to actually amp people up. Oftentimes, they'll try it before bed and they'll say, hey, I'm not noticing any difference, or in fact, it's keeping me awake. So if you've tried melatonin and perhaps you're looking for something new, sleep gummies, they're great. So head on over to onefarm.com and put in Lion20 for a $20 credit for these sleep gummies. Give them a try. They are full of herbs and extracts. They have concentrated active compounds, gluten-free, made in the U.S. Give them a try. Tart cherry. You're going to love it. A special thank you to Paleo Valley for sponsoring this episode of the Dr. Gabrielle Lyon Show. If you've been listening, you know how much I love Paleo Valley beef sticks, and they even made me a very fancy landing page. So go to paleovalley.com slash Dr. Lyon, and you can go ahead and check that out. I love these beef sticks, and here's why. They're sourced from small domestic farms in the U.S. They use real organic spices to flavor their beef sticks versus conventional spices. They don't use any, quote, natural flavors. They ferment their sticks, which creates this natural occurring probiotic, which is great for the gut. I'm obsessed with these beef sticks. In fact, I just was talking to Autumn and begging her to send me all the different flavors. 
They're amazing. They're a great protein snack that you can grab on the go. You'll get 15% off. Just go to paleovalley.com slash Dr. Lion. You'll get a 100% grass-fed beef, and it's higher in omegas, vitamins and minerals. It has glutathione and CLA and bioavailable protein. I love them. I'm obsessed, and I know that you will love them too. Doug Kachijan. <laughs> so nice to see you. Nice to see you too. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, of course. Actually, how long has it been since I've seen you? It's probably been, I would say, over five years. I really? Think, right? Yeah. Oh, the time, the time flies. Um, and I actually met you because I had some injuries. So I met you at Solus, right, in the oh. city. And uh, you are pretty an impressive human. I remember you telling me, uh, and also your wife too, she was like climbing Mount Kilimanjaro at some point. Climbed Everest, actually. Summit <laughs> oh. at Everest. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Yeah. It's more impressive than me. <laughs> uh, well, and um, you are absolutely no slouch. So you went to Brown undergrad. Mm-hmm. Then you went to Columbia for physical therapy school, but not directly. You also went into the military in between and went were in the pararescue. Correct. Is it the pararescue unit? Yeah, that was the the career field's called pararescue. I was in a pararescue unit, right. but I, I suppose I I did pararescue in the military in the Air Force. <laughs> in the Air Force, as a pararescueman in the Air yes, Force. Yes, yes. So we're, we're going to talk about that. But really, why I was so excited to have you here today is that again, you're a physical therapist with a lot of experience, a lot of experience both within yourself. You're very athletic. You have worked with special operations community athletes and normal population, and it's really confusing. And and I actually. I'm excited for you to clear this up for me because I have your your daily schedule here. Um, so basically, if I'm not mistaken, you wake up in the morning um, by natural sunlight and you meditate for about 20 minutes. Then you begin your hot and cold bath with your organically brewed coffee. You begin your uh, ice bath and then sauna alternating, moving right into mobility training Um then strength, or maybe mobility, then breathing, strength training later. Then after that, you then go to your egg farm out in the back and get your organic eggs. And then by that time, it's like three o'clock and you then go to your endurance training and then perhaps work on soft tissue. And I'm just curious, how do you have time for all that? Yeah, that's pretty funny. I mean, we're talking about that that offline and just about trying to make sense of, of the fitness world because there's so much information and it's so confusing to make sense of it. And so you're you do, saying you don't do that. I do not do, yes. For the record, I do not do those things. That was that was satire. Um, but if, if you did all the things you were supposed to do, because these are all various things that have been recommended, how would you have time to live a regular life and like have a job, have a have a family, even if you don't have a, you know an immediate family, just just do the things, daily responsibilities of life. So um yeah, I mean, it's it's when it comes to fitness, it's like, what do you what do a needs analysis? How do we triage like what we actually need? Because if we did all the things that we're supposed to do, and a lot of the things that you mentioned, I think have very like just sort of a, a marginal impact on people's health. But the issue is like the fitness space is so specialized and like it's hyper like niche focused, and everybody thinks they're part of like that one percent where it's like I don't need to worry about like basic things like the difference between you know. My my longevity and performance and just being average is that I'm not doing an ice bath in the morning or I'm not meditating for a half hour. And I'm not saying any of those things are bad in isolation, but like, how do you know that you actually need them? And and ultimately, it comes down to like, what do you really what do you really want? I think a lot of people, you know, do things because like they're supposed to do them because it's not there's no filter 
through which the information is presented. And a lot of this stuff is driven, frankly, by like marketing because the, the fitness world is so specialized. It, there's not like people aren't going to make money off of being nuanced and saying like, you need to have a balance of all these physical qualities. And, you know, if you do mobility work, but you don't know how to structure a strength program, one thing can undermine the other or, you know, like how much endurance training do you really need? Because now there's this whole like, you know, it used to be never do any aerobic work, only right. do intervals. Now everyone should be doing like 13 hours of zone two a week. And it's like 13 hours is a lot just to do that one thing because right. that, that's your endurance. Like, so now if you want to do a little bit of strength training, now you're also supposed to do an hour of strength training three days a week. So now we're at 15 hours. <laughs> and, you know, so that's three hours a day, five days a week. Um, I don't, I don't know about you, but I don't have that kind of time. And I'm very devoted to fitness. It's a huge part of my life and I'm very active. So how is someone who maybe is generally unhealthy, has some apprehension about exercise and movement, how are you going to get them to do that? So I think a lot of times, like a lot of the zone two stuff came from people are trying to extrapolate what do elite endurance athletes do and like extrapolating the training of elite endurance athletes to like regular people who just want to be like healthy and maybe like live more fulfilling, longer right. lives. Like, I don't know if that's the leap that we need to be making. So it's like, yeah, how do you make sense of all this stuff? And I think that you, you know, your satirical point in the beginning about the routine, I think is like, we, 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 we can have a conversation about, you know, like, again, do we need to do all these things and where do they, where do they fit in? Because if we did all the things that we're quote unquote supposed to do, also you're supposed to sleep eight to 10 hours a night while also getting up at four in the morning. Right. You know, so it's like, when, when, yeah, right. well, I mean, where do we, where, where do we even go? It's, it's really confusing. And I think that the confusion leads to kind of uh, paralysis or people taking all this information and choosing things that are perhaps really high risk for them. I think that the goal of our conversation is number one is really understanding and it's hard to say, right? There's a lot of nuance. What should somebody be focusing on? And you, how long have you been in practice? Um, it's been like about 10 years now. Okay, 10 yeah. years. And I'm assuming, right, with any good clinician that the the way in which you've looked through the lens of your profession has changed. 100%. I mean, I would say like initially, you want to tell everybody what you know <laughs> and show them how, how you know smart you think you are. And again, a lot of this stuff, we talked about this before, like I think a lot of the, the problems that we're trying to solve aren't information problems, they're application or behavioral change problems. So like most people like could be quote unquote healthier. It's not because they don't know what to do. Think about nutrition, right? Like people can split hairs about like micro macronutrient ratios and supplementation protocols. But like, I think even, you know, dietary people who are like constantly arguing with each other on social media, yeah. if you got them in a room and you're like, all right, what are the things that really matter to you? They'd pretty much say the same things. They would maybe debate like the the 5%. Right. Um, and I think with with training, it's kind of like the same thing. I think we people know generally what they, most people don't do enough, right? So, you know, there, there, there's, I think, a segment of the population that does too much and they need different advice than people. But most people like as a whole, if you look at, you know, some of the health epidemics right. that we're facing, it's it's just lack of, lack of doing, lack of exercise for whatever reason. Like I'm not trying to I don't know the reason why it doesn't happen. If it, you know, you could say it's it's genetic, it's it's environmental. I, I think there are like societal things. I mean, if you have to work three jobs, it's harder to exercise, right? right? So there's, there's a variety of reasons why somebody may or may not be active. But for most people, they probably should just be more active, regardless of what it is. Because if you get too hyper focused on it, it has to be this thing that creates an impediment to behavioral change. Someone's trying to modify their lifestyle. If you have them do something that's too hard, they're not they're not going to do it. And you know, to have somebody go from zero exercise a week to like, you've got to do, go from that to 13 hours of zone two. It's like never going to happen. So early on in my career, I think I focused way too much on like 
what I thought was ideal and not on like, all right, like try to figure out like, what does this person really want? Because you, you asked me before, you know, what do you, what do I think a person should do? I would say that it's not my place to determine that. Like I'm, I'm very like, I defer to people, you know, unless they're doing something that's going to harm me or somebody else. Like, what do you, what do you want out of your own life? Like some people might not even like want to necessarily be healthy and that's like totally fine. You know, they might not want to be, be active, but if somebody says, yeah, like, I don't really care about being active per se, but I want to be able to play with my grandkids. Well, your body, you know, over time, like adapts to not doing things. So unless you create a different type of adaptation stimulus, like it's going to be hard for you to play with your grandkids. So how do you, how do you kind of like synthesize those things? And people might say two things that are at odds and how do you help them make sense of that? But mm. I, I start every now, like every initial evaluation with somebody, it's like, first of all, like, why are you here? And then how can I help you? I let them drive the conversation. And I try to be, be a guide to that. But I don't tell people like what they should or shouldn't mm. be doing. Like, I don't, I don't care what exercises you do. I like, if somebody is into Olympic lifting, I don't tell them like, don't do it. Or you, you have to do it. It's like, all right, if that's a big part of your life. And that brings you joy. Then like, how can I help you do that? Now, if someone I think is doing something that's really putting their health at risk, like you're going to be a, a surgical candidate. If you keep doing those things, I'll, I'll tell them, I, I think that this is unnecessarily risky for, you know, what you're trying to achieve, but that's it, not my place to tell them don't do it. I'm like, here's, in my opinion, what are the, you know, here's the the upside and the downside of what you're doing and your approach. And here's an alternative approach, but I'll, it's still your decision whether to do it. Like I just provide information and I, you know, hopefully do it in a way where it's respectful. And then I let them decide what they want to do. And they but, may or may not hear you. I think that when I went to see you, I, I probably didn't hear you for uh, quite some time. And, uh, <laughs> right. But that's also, I mean, that was five years ago. And yeah. I think I've even, you know, gotten better with my approach since then. And that could have been also the responsibility works both ways. Maybe I was trying to get you to do too much too soon. And I was focused on like what I thought was ideal for you versus recognizing that, you know, if I just change one or two things and have you do everything else that you want to do, even though that's not the perfect plan, it's, it's a step in the right direction. Whereas like, and again, I don't know if this is the case, but in the abstract, maybe I, I wanted you to do something that was too difficult for you to accept from a behavioral change standpoint at the time. Like doing and, less. Perhaps. Yeah. And it's my fault that like I didn't deliver the message better. Right. So it works both ways. But I think to answer your question, I've simplified my approach way more because I, you know, we live in this, this hyper information world where like the answer to every question is more data, more information. And we're not like, we're not computers. Like I think a lot of, a lot of what people need, again, is an application problem. It's not an information problem. And I think in the beginning, I bombarded people with information, too much abstract theory, things that I probably couldn't even prove or substantiate, but that I thought were interesting. With And I, I talked to people more like they were colleagues and not like they were hmm. patients. And I think that was my biggest mistake. And now I've just simplified my approach way more because like, I, you know, it's not about me. It's about, it's about them and what they want. How do you get them there the easiest way? Are there certain things that perhaps... Um, necessary stimulus for health and longevity. And let me kind of preface that by saying, you mentioned zone two, zone two training, so right, uh, cardiovascular training, strength training, mobility. Are there certain things that doesn't necessarily matter the way in which it's applied, but that should be done when individuals think about, again, not necessarily the athlete, but or the operator, which which we'll get to, but the the person sitting at home thinking, oh my God, this is so confusing all the information out there, what am I supposed to be doing? Yeah. So I would look at the model that I use is I like think of a couple of things. I think of like variability or position. Do they have, can their joints get into the positions to do the things that are important to them? And I think that like 
human beings should be able to do certain things from a positional standpoint, regardless of their goals, whether it's an athlete, general population. And, you know, those standards will be modified depending on the, the, the expectations are lowered as mm. people age. But, it, you know, I've got some intuitively, I have some standards that I think people should be able to meet regardless of their, of their goal or their age. So they need to be able to do that because if we just live our lives and I think sport is a good, good kind of analogy. I mean, there's like, there's these always a lot of infighting in the physical therapy world about like what people, there's like the movement optimists who, you know, think that like, it doesn't matter like how somebody moves because the body organically finds the best solution, which I think is oversimplified. And then there's the like kind of the overly obsessed biomechanics crowd where it's like, we're going to look at everything to the, you know, the infinitesimal degree. And if you're missing, you know, 0 0.005 degrees of, you know, of calcaneal eversion on this side, it's going to cause you to have headaches. And, you know, this whole like the biomechanical determinism, I think the, the answer is somewhere in the middle, but you, I think you need to have some kind of foundational positions to be able to number one, be healthy and number two, perform. So if we look at like even a, a, a runner, right? Like, Yes, if all you do is run, running doesn't require a ton of mobility per se and a, a lot of like end range position. But if all you do is run, your body gets the message that like, I only need to be in these positions. So now if that's all you do, now when you run, your body is effectively operating at close to 100% of its capacity for position. If you're trying to be efficient, you don't want to be operating at 100% just to go, you want to have some kind of a reserve. It's kind of like, imagine if, you know, the only money you had in your in your bank account was just enough to meet your daily expenses, but you had no buffer in case something went wrong. Like you're in trouble. You're fragile at that point. So you don't need to be a billionaire to not be financially fragile, but you need to have a little bit more money than just to meet your expenses because those can change. We don't live in a stable world. So when it comes to like mobility or position, you want to have your foundational, whatever that looks like, the requisite movement to you know just be a human and then a little bit more. And then that might also change that reserve mm -hmm that's needed depending on like what your goals are. If you're a circus lay performer, you need a lot more position than someone who just wants to go for a run three days a week. So, you know, that the, the mobility piece will vary with someone's goals, but I think that, you know, especially as people age, they need to do more than probably what they're doing. And it can even be like 10 minutes a day, mm. you know? Um, I think that people need to have also, you know, like some kind of power, which I'll define power as like the ability to do things quickly or at a high intensity. And intensity would be, not like how subjectively hard it feels, but you know, if you can bench press 100 pounds, 90 pounds one time is more intense by that definition than doing 50 pounds 20 times, right? Mm -hmm. So you you want to you want to be it's it's all about bandwidth, right? Like you need variability in, in how you move in your joint position. You also need variability. It's kind of like gears in a car. Mm. If you can only operate in first gear, you're sort of fragile. Even if you're not driving 100 miles an hour on the road, you want to have the ability to go outside of first gear, and so having that that bandwidth and your ability to whether it's like if it's running like even if you're you know you look at how elite runners train like people talk about let's say like an 800 meter runner and how they're maybe more distance oriented or speed oriented but an 800 meter runner they're they're still way faster than most team sport athletes like if you had an 800 meter runner in the olympics sprint against a team sport athlete the 800 meter runner would smoke them because you have you have to have speed and, and the ability to kind of maintain it um so being, being, and especially as we age, we don't do things at, at a high intensity, high output, high rate of force development. And so I think people, even as they age, should do things fast. Now, they might not be like sprinting at max velocity. It might be, you know, for them just doing like, like an extensive, you know, box jump onto a one inch box just to like maintain some elastic. For them, that might be like kind of 
a safe way for them to maintain their their rate of force development, elasticity. But most people as they age do none of that kind of stuff. Right. Because the emphasis is always on like, yeah, strength, bone mineral density. That's great. You should do that. But you should also do, th do things fast because in the elderly, especially, there's huge emphasis on fall prevention, which I think is a little bit of a misguided paradigm because you can't prevent falls. I mean, even you and I, like we're young, you know, but in the winter we can go outside and slip on the ice and we can't predict when we're going to mm, fall. That's a really good point. And so like, if you slip on the ice, you need the ability to right yourself rapidly. You don't prepare for that by like standing on a foam pad and just, you know, like, okay, I'm telling you to balance now. That's very predictable. When you fall, it's unpredictable. So you want to train somewhat dynamically, albeit safely to prepare for these catastrophic circumstances. And you also... But that's where the strength training piece comes in. You want to be strong enough that if and when you do fall, because inevitably you're going to fall. Right, absolutely. That, that the consequence of that fall isn't that you break your hip and die. Right. Right? So- I think there are 36 million falls, individuals over the age of 65. It's something like that number could even be higher. Yeah. It's a lot of falls. But the, yeah. in the elderly, the emphasis is mainly on like balance training, not so much on strength training, not on doing... And again, like you can scale anything. I mean, like I've worked with elderly people where- I didn't think it would be safe for them to sprint, but I had them push a weighted sled and run as fast as they could with that because it slows them down enough to make it safe. Plus they're holding onto a sled, so they're not gonna fall, they're, they're more balanced, right? But you can scale pretty much any exercise or any movement to make it appropriate to the person's goals, but you still wanna train like the end of the spectrum, mm. which is doing things fast and at like a higher output or intensity. And, and then, always, do you feel like the individuals should always be training? They should be hitting it somewhat regularly. I mean, I would say like probably, you know, at least once a week, maybe twice a week. Because again, if you don't train it, it's going to go away. Your body, I mean, people talk about how amazing the body is and its ability to adapt. I also think it's amazing in its ability to not adapt. <laughs> to well, it's always adapting, right? Like, yeah. yeah, because it's so efficient. I mean, if you go into space and you come back and you can't walk, like your body is so frugal that it's like, oh, like I don't, I don't need to maintain all of these all of these qualities. I don't need to invest biological resources into living in a in a gravity environment because I'm in zero gravity. And in a couple of weeks, you're like a totally different person. Like that's that's actually amazing. But you need to give your body an impetus to adapt. And then the last piece of that is capacity, like your ability to kind of to extend, right? Um and so that would be kind of more of like the the zone two type stuff. But look, I mean I think like in an ideal world, people would be doing a couple of days a week of things that look like zone two, a couple of days a week of, you know, like higher intensity things scaled to, you know, what they're capable of and, and, what, and what's safe for them. Um, and then, you know, pretty much daily or close to daily doing things where they're, they're taking their joints and positions beyond what their activities of daily life demand of them. What would be an example of that? Um, I mean, you know, people like, people don't want like a routine that like I would give them. It's like, go do you know, a modified yoga class or go do Pilates. Like it could, it could be Tai Chi. Right. But I think, I think 10 minutes where you're just like, you know, taking your joints to whether it's like, you know, hips, knees, ankles, shoulders of, you know, trying to work on some end range positions and ultimately maybe extending your end range so that you've got, you have a buffer beyond what's required in your, in your life. Cause if all you do is just live your life, you're going to be able to get in those positions, but eventually like your body gets more and more fragile and, you know, if you don't give it a reason to adapt, and that includes joint position, it's not going to maintain those positions. And, you know, now you're just, you're not going to have options, right? Like whether it's in the things that you enjoy doing or even in your life, like once you, once you lose variety, variability, you become a lot more breakable. And that's, you know, I think we see that a lot with 
some of the, like the joint replacements and those kind of things. Like, I don't think people necessarily are needing these surgeries because they are doing too much. I think it's because they don't do enough and they don't give their joints a reason to adapt to stress. There's obviously the people on the other side of that continuum who do too much and they quote unquote, like wear things out. But I think most people, if they did more, their joints would feel better. Ah, that's interesting. So really what you're bringing up the point is, is how fragile the human has the potential to become. Yes. Um, and so just to recap, you had said some of the things that are critical that everybody should be doing are position. And when you say position, you're saying moving through uh, uh, the joint in a way that perhaps you wouldn't, whether it's a yoga positioning or would that include certain stretches? Yeah, it could. I mean, like I'm, I'm somewhat agnostic about like it, it could be. I mean, even people now vilify like static stretching. I mean, I think there's there's a place for it. Maybe it shouldn't be all you do, but it could be like kind of more of like a dynamic type stretching routine. It could be a static stretching routine. I typically like people to be somewhat active in their end range position. So like I'll do static stretching if I think someone just needs like, and it takes a lot of duration and force to like physically change tissue. So typically when you see like a transient change in mobility or position, it's neurologically driven because again, Imagine if your body was so fragile that you could just do a stretch for 15 seconds, all of a sudden, like your, you know, your, your like connective tissue change, that would not be good. Same thing with foam rolling, right? Like you could foam roll or get a massage and you'll feel looser afterwards, but you don't want to, if, if your body was so fragile that you laid on a piece of styrofoam for, for a minute, and now again, your connective tissue changed, that would not be good. So something is happening. It's probably more neurologically driven. If you want to like lengthen tissue, it does take a lot of time and a lot of force and a lot of consistency to do that. So there is a place for static stretching if it's indicated, but typically I like people just to get into some end range type positions, like learn how to contract their muscles and be somewhat active there because you don't want to have position without the ability to control it. Um, you could also, but, and that's where strength training through a full range of motion can be helpful too. Mm. That can be mobility training for people because, you know, you're using that external load to maybe get your body in a position it couldn't get into normally. And now you have to, you know, use concentric force to get out of it. So that that can also, you know, improve range of motion. So that's why even the the line between strength training and mobility training can be arbitrary because hypothetically you could just have a well-structured strength training program and not need to do dedicated mobility work. I mean, I think you'd have to have a really good program to do that and a very like specialized type of person. So I think there is a place for dedicated mobility work, but it doesn't need to be complicated, but I think you need to, you know, learn how to be active in end range positions. Um, and, but cause also static stretching takes longer for it to be effective. So it just depends on also like how much time you have. I mean, if people have the time and enjoy spending an, like an hour just doing mobility, like in a yoga class, go ahead and do it. You have to be more surgical with it when you're, you're pressed for time and maybe only have 10 minutes to devote to it because you have all these additional qualities you want to train. Yeah, I think that that's really helpful for people to understand that a component of their activity should be end range position and kind of mobility because people can do that at home. Yes. And it doesn't require uh, extra. There's no friction in going to the gym to do that stuff yeah. unless you want to. Yeah. And then the other thing that you had mentioned was power. Mm -hmm. And uh, when I heard you say power, I'm thinking about uh, some kind of explosive activity. Yes. And that could also include would you also define that as some kind of high intensity interval training or it's separate? Yeah. So, I mean, high intensity interval training is kind of a vague term because I actually, the, the the power that I'm talking about, most people when they do like HIIT workouts, I don't think that it's intense enough. I think most of the time, you know, HIIT can be any, you can make an interval of any duration, but typically when people are doing like HIIT, they're training in that middle zone between like the zone two and what I'm, I'm talking about, like, you know, doing something for, five to eight seconds, like with as much intent as you can, 
at a pace that you couldn't sustain for the typical hit interval, which might be like 20 seconds or more. I mean, even look at like a, a Tabata protocol, like it's intense from the standpoint, that like it feels hard, but your output isn't going to be as high as like what you're maximally capable of if you're doing something for 20 seconds, resting 10 and doing it eight times. So like, depending on what your goal is, those kind of protocols can be effective. But I'm talking about like, I want people to work the extreme end of that spectrum. So like for me personally, like in my own training, like twice a week, like I will sprint as fast as I can and it's over in a couple of seconds because I'm trying to train that like the, just the end of the bandwidth, the extreme end of that continuum. If I were to go out and run 400s, I'm training a totally different quality. Mm. It's fine, but you know, I think that people like for like longevity and health should train the extreme end of the continuum. I don't know if the middle part of that, like the interval stuff is needed for health or longevity per se. I think that that like, if you're in a sport that demands that you work on that intermediate, you know, like more like lactic type energy system, then, then, then it's, it's needed. I don't think it's needed for, for people to be quote unquote, like healthy, but I mean, if people like it for variety, they can do it, but I don't think they need it. I don't, I don't think it's a substance. I think a lot of times people do it because in a lot of the studies of HIT, it shows that in the short term, it can be more effective even for certain aerobic adaptations than doing slower stuff. But you get those adaptations very fast and they kind of plateau. Um, so people use HIT because it's efficient and it's like, well, I don't need to sprint and I don't need to go for long. Because sprinting is not fun. Right, it's not fun. And going effort. for long, I, I think actually like, doing an hour of zone two is I, I would much rather do a hit workout because like it's you're in and you're out and it's quick, right. like doing zone two stuff is effing boring, you know? But, um, so I think people do it because like, it's a shortcut, but like anything else, there's no real, like if you're taking a shortcut, you're probably depriving yourself of your maximum potential. And I think if all you do is hit, you're not getting the entire benefits and bandwidth of what you would get if you did like really long, low intensity slow duration stuff like zone two and then really, really high intensity stuff. Like you're going for five to eight seconds for like full recovery, whether it's on a bike or sprinting, whatever the modality is, but you're not really training the extremes, of the continuum if all you're doing is hit, you're training the middle and you'll get, you'll get some peripheral adaptations that are like, you know, on the right and left of of the zone that you trained in, but you're not expanding your, your bandwidth as much as if you did the, the full thing. And is, so that's the sprint interval training that you're talking about. Is that a component of the power that you're discussing? Yeah, I would call power. it like, yeah, by what I'm talking about, like the five to eight seconds. I yes. mean, even if you look at like what track and field athletes do, like say middle distance runners where they have to kind of be aerobically fit, but also fast and operate at a high intensity. Like typically they're training in the, in the big early part of the season is very polarized. They're doing like longer, slower stuff, not in the middle zone. And then like some strides or some hill sprints where they're working on like their pure speed, but not in a fatigue state. And then as they get closer to the season, they get more specific and they're doing more of like the interval type stuff that's closer to their event. But the track and field model, I think is actually pretty illuminating mm -hmm. for even general health. Like what most track and field coaches do is they look at the event and in the, in the early off season, they'll train like two events above and below, you know, the, 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 com the competition event. So like if you're an 800 runner, you're operating at like, you know, the, on, to the left of that, you've got the 400 and then you've got the 200. They're doing things that look more like what a 200 meter athlete mm. would do, like more pure, you know, max velocity. And then they're training maybe more of like a, what, like a 5k type person would do. And then as the season gets closer, they get, you know, they get more specific. But if you're like, just do the, the interval stuff all the time, you're never, ex you're never, you're never raising your floor never or your better. ceiling. Like, mm. so the, the, the really like high intensity stuff that I'm talking about, 
that raises the ceiling. The lower intensity stuff lowers the floor. So now, now it's just easier for you to actually to meet in the middle. But if all you do is is work in the middle, yeah, like you'll get better at that zone, but you're not really expanding your bandwidth. You're not lowering the floor, raising the ceiling. And it's ultimately going to make you less adaptable if that's all you do. And for you personally, when you're doing focusing on that power, that sprint, that's two times a week. How long does that take you? It takes me longer than you would think because <laughs> the, the rest periods are long because I want full recoveries. And because I'm older, like I can't just like get out of bed and sprint as fast as I can. So I, I mean, my warm up probably lasts like longer than the than the workout, but like you don't need to do it that way. I mean, I don't think like everyone should be just getting off the couch and sprinting. Like I think that just my own bias is that if you can maintain the ability to sprint, it's going to keep you young because it requires a certain, you know, degree of proficiency from a positional mobility standpoint, from a rate of force development standpoint, from a strength standpoint. But like you could do a similar type protocol and get on an assault bike or an echo bike and not even warm up because you're not going to like really hurt yourself doing that and go like a bat out of hell for five to eight seconds and do that with full recoveries. And that could, you could do that very quickly. So it just depends on, again, what your goal is. Would that be four minutes, eight minutes total? Do you have an idea of how many um, intervals you would do? If you're training, if you just want to like just raise the ceiling, you don't need to do as many. I mean, like a workout that I'll do on the bike that I like is, is I'll go for like five to eight seconds, like all out. And I'll do that every minute on the minute until my like wattage decreases by like, let's say like 3%. Okay. And then once, once it, once it goes below 3%, I'm done because I want, I only want to train at a high quality that day. And if you're, if you do that enough of that kind of work and you support it with some lower intensity aerobic work on different days, I mean, you can get up to being able to do 40 to 60 of those. Now that might take longer than you want. So if your goal is just pure, you know, pure intensity and not capacity, I mean, you could, you don't, the thing with intensity is you don't need a lot of, the stimulus is not volume. It's the intensity. So you don't need to do more than a handful. I mean, in a sprint workout, if you're just trying to like work on top end speed, like I might not do more than like two to four repetitions after I've warmed up. Cause it's kind of like maxing out in the gym. Like if your goal is to like, I'm going to, I'm going to hit like, you know, 95%, a couple of singles today, you're not doing a million singles because the intensity is the stimulus. So you might do a handful of them and you're done. Can, um, can the average person um, do that? For example, let's say, so we have an assault bike at home mm-hmm. and I jump on the assault bike and I'm going to try to go as hard as I can for eight seconds. There's so much resistance. Perhaps maybe my upper body isn't as strong or um, my lower body isn't as strong. Does that, does the average person, does that become an, an impedance? The the physical aspect to be able to kind of push that? It can, I mean, like on, on a bike, I mean, Ideally, you'd want a bike that you can adjust the resistance because, you know, if on those bikes that you mentioned, the resistance is set. And so for some people, they might not like have the strength to get the RPMs very high. So for them, it's like really not, you know, when it comes to like you're generating wattage, like there's a, there's a balance between like force and and um and the, and the rate of force development. And obviously, if it's too high, the resistance, you're not going fast enough to generate a high power output. And if it's um if it's too low, there's not enough force to generate a high power output. So, but look, if, if that's the only bike somebody has, then eventually like they're going to get better at it they're if they gonna do get it. Better. So just do it with as much intent as you can. I mean, I would tell someone like, if that's all you have, you're better off just doing it. Even if you're not working with like the ideal parameters, just do it for five to eight seconds with full intent. And then maybe, you know, if, if the bike is the thing you want to get better at, do some of your lower intensity stuff on the bike as well. Because at that point, you're not worried about power output. You're just worried about duration mm. and just go at a pace that allows you to maintain a certain heart rate or intensity and like you'll get better at it. But I mean, if you're 
a professional cyclist, of course, you're going to work on a bike that you can modify the resistance because then you're working with very specific parameters to get very specific adaptations depending on the day that you're training. That makes sense. So there, there are other options there. If someone can sprint physically, can, they can do that. That's a great way to push that um, power. Yep. The bike, a, a rower perhaps, yep. and maybe a ski erg. It could like it could literally be anything. anything. Yeah. I mean, I, I like the, I like, I think sprinting to me is the gold standard because that's just like, you know, as a human being, like if the shit hits the fan, I want to be able to run away from someone. So and, my and, husband and, and, says that's training to retreat. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, sometimes you got to retreat. Um, but yeah. like, you know, doing, doing a skier isn't going to prepare you necessarily for that mm. as much, but look, like let, let's say someone is like, you know, has a lower, lower leg injury or is like just myself com yeah. com compromised in some way where that's either like temporarily or permanently not an option, mm. then you're getting a skier. That's great. I mean, I have people, you know, cause you're also training the, the nervous system. You're training like a global system. You're not just training like locally what's right. going on at the muscular level. So like I'll have people um, who are coming off like even like a lower body surgery or injury. And like, I might have them do like explosive med ball throws, or I might have them do some kind of like a modified skier or the assault bike with just the arms, but use a more like power intensity based right. protocol just to get them so that neurologically, like their bodies still maintain the ability to recruit muscles quickly, even if it's not the muscles that maybe they primarily would want to use in that type of session. Right. You know, what you're talking about is of critical importance because again, out there in the, the health and wellness space and even the medicine space, there's a lot of discussion on what are the diseases that kill us. And there's a lot of discussion and confusion in the fitness realm. There's a new thing popping up all the time. And what I'm finding so valuable is you're really talking about how do we train for longevity and how do we push and continue to make our bodies adapt versus atrophy yeah right and become and kind of this fragility that you've seen i've seen uh, which is which is hugely important the third thing that you had mentioned so we talked about position we talked about power and then the third thing that you mentioned is capacity yep and the capacity is the zone two kind of- uh, That's extending. Extending. Yeah. Yep. How much of that would be considered adequate? Um, adequate, I would say, you know, like for me, because I'm busy, I'm only like, I, I'm only de do dedicating two days a week to just that. Mm. But there's all, the thing is like, I'm probably also getting a bunch of zone two when I'm walking, like when I'm walking around, pushing my son in a stroller, right. even though I'm not like considering that training. And there's like even some of the like the sports that I play, like if I do like a like a martial arts class or like when I when I play tennis, because mm. I, like, I was a competitive tennis player, like probably for, for the most part, my heart rate is is overall averaging like in kind of the zone. There might be periods where like I'm going above my like say you know my threshold, but for the most part, like I'm not like gassed when I'm doing those things. Right. It's really more about like just skill development, mm. you know, for the course of the session. Um, but I, I'm not like counting that as dedicated times. So, like I, I have, I have like various like sports interests where I'm not, so like, I don't just like do things purely for exercise. But so I think for like the person who doesn't have those competing demands, like if you're hitting that pro like three times a week, I think that's probably adequate. But also, I mean, if you're doing it even twice a week, but you're also hitting the higher intensity stuff once or twice a week, that's probably fine too. I mean, with all these things, it's like, there's, there's a bell curve and you know, like optimal for any, like the zone two, I mean, you can do it unlimited theoretically, but you're going to get the most benefits probably from doing mm. the first couple of hours of it. Like, you know, if you're doing three hours a week of it, you're probably, somebody might know the research and know the number, but you're, you're getting the majority of the benefits 
and the, the returns are much more marginal when you go from three to, to 10 or to 13. So I, I the problem with the, with the, the capacity stuff is it's the most time consuming. Right. And most people, I mean, even if you did an hour of zone two a day, which is a lot for most people, including me, that's like only six hours, right? And then you, I'm still I'm still saying you should be doing this higher intensity exactly. stuff and strength training. Exactly. So like, you know, I used to be much more judgmental of people. And then I had a kid. People would say like, oh, like I've got a kid and a job. Like I always had the job part. Right. It's like, oh, like I've got a job and a kid. And it's like, I don't have time to do this. And it's like, ah, be, but like you really, a lot of people really don't have the time. Um, you have to pick one or the other. You have to pick things. At some point, unless you're again, Yeah, like everything is, a, everything's a trade-off. Yep. So, I mean- I think if people could shoot for again, this is I'm not saying this is optimal, but if they can shoot for like two to three days a week of that, just like it could even be just like if you have a kid, putting your kid in one of those like baby carriers and going for a walk for you know close to an hour, like not it's again it's not optimal, but it's 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 good. It's getting you the majority of the way there because um, like now we're at you know one or two days a week of doing the higher intensity stuff. We're at two to three days a week of doing the uh, the you know the capacity stuff, and then I'm still saying like. You should probably strength train, you know, one or two days a week. So like that's getting close to seven days a week of doing something that's going to take you close to an hour a day, or you're going to have to double up if you want to take a day off. And a lot of people don't have even an hour a day. So that's where, you know, I'm just very realistic about this stuff because like, we, you know, we joked about like the writing in the journal and meditating and doing the ice bath and the sauna and then like, you know, getting, you know, having, your, your having the chicken farm. Eggs. Yeah, yeah. Like, and it's, it's really hard to to do all those things. So um, I think from like a, just a general health and a longevity standpoint, if you can do, if you can get one to two days a week of the higher intensity stuff, one to two days a week of strength training, it could even be one and then two to three days a week of the, like the zone two higher or uh, longer duration stuff. Like you're going to be most of the, most of the way there. Is there a time where there's a catch up? For example, if an individual is really untrained and say they're now in their thirties, they maybe just really never focused on physical activity or even in their forties, do they have to go through a period of catch up? Because it's likely much more easier to maintain than it is to develop that, yeah, yeah. new. But the thing is you have the rest of your life to do it. So it, yeah, you are, you're catching yeah. up. Yeah. But what's the rush? I mean, if the goal is like, we're doing this for the long haul and we're really trying to create have, like I, I, at this point in my life, I don't have like goals where I'm like, I want to run like this distance at this speed or, or like lift this amount of weight. My goal is just to like not suck. So it's more about like, it's <laughs> right. about maintaining and just like adhering to that process of like, okay, I don't even like saying do, do something this many days a week. Cause that's not like life gets in the way. Like typically I have, I have a cycle where it's like, okay, I'm going to typically in about seven days, I'm going to hit these things. But if I don't do it in seven days, I just, I hit, maybe I hit it in nine days and I just re- keep repeating mm-hmm. it because I've got my whole freaking life right. to keep repeating it. So yes, like there is a catch up if you're more deconditioned and you're starting from a lower place, but who cares? Because if the idea is like, you're just trying to maintain consistency and habits and make this a part of your life, it doesn't really matter because you're never like, there's never a point where like you're there if you operate from that mentality. I think if you're an athlete, you have to do that because you've got very concrete goals, but that's kind of the nice thing about not competing anymore, like not even being in the military, like I can, and the reality is like having a more process oriented way of looking at things. I probably from a goal standpoint am, could meet most of what I was doing when I was much more hyper-focused on it. Hmm. You know, you mentioned the military. Um, can you talk a little bit about that time and did that time ap- actually shape the way in which you practice or have uh, potentially thought through these processes? Yes, I mean the the thing about the military and being in in pararescue. And what is a pararescuer? 
Pararescue, it's a job in the Air Force where like your primary job is to, you know, the technical definition is to recover <laughs> personnel, any Department of Defense personnel and equipment in a, you know, in a permissive or non-permissive environment, which basically means like, you know, um, when people get into trouble, people or equipment get into trouble, whether it's like in a civilian rescue scenario or in combat, like your team, you know, goes there sometimes with support of other units, other teams to, to get them out. So, I mean, it was cool because there was a very broad mission scope. I mean, you know, there, you know, we were doing things like hurricane flying down South and doing hurricane release, uh, relief, hurricane rescue. There were, and is it jumping out of the plane? Is that why it's called it, pararescue? Yeah, I mean, it can be that, like that's one of your capabilities, but that's, that's, you know, ties into what I want to talk about, which is like, you train for these like very, very difficult, like specialized skills. But the idea is to, like not have to use them. Like those are contingencies, but you want to use the easiest, safest way to to get somewhere. But I mean, you know, we we did civilian rescues. Like there's a unit in Alaska where, like where they've literally parachuted onto a glacier to rescue somebody that was attacked by a bear. Um, my my I was not on this mission, but like within a year or less of after I separated from the military, my unit parachuted next to a container ship treated two people who were critically burned, mm -hmm. basically ran almost like the equivalent of like an ICU on this ship, kept people Incredible. alive for a couple of days, and like literally saved this person's life with stuff that they could just jump in, you know, on their backs. Um, and then you, we had the whole, we had like the combat scenario. So like you're in, you know, uh, Iraq or Afghanistan or somewhere like that, you're either embedded with a unit on the ground or you maintain an alert posture where you're like close by to where the action is. And you basically have to be prepared for, any kind of scenario, whether it's like a downed, downed aircraft, you know, um, uh, improvised explosive device, device to a vehicle, even like technical rescue. So we were prepared for things like high angle, high angle rescue, depending on the terrain. So really, really like broad skill set. But the pri the primary objective was, you know, returning people or equipment back to to a safe place. We had some offensive capabilities, but if that was going to be a huge part of the mission, then we would call other people to assist us with that. So, that, you know, they would maintain more of the security posture while we did more of the technical rescue and the, and the patient treatment. But the goal was to, yeah, I mean, we advertised like we could maintain casualties for up to 72 hours before getting them to a higher level of care using whatever, you know, means of infiltration are necessary to get there, whether that's parachuting, um, scuba diving, you know, foot patrols, small unit tactics, and then doing those, that technical rescue, whether it's like extrication from a vehicle rope rescue, doing the, the follow-on medical care, and then doing the handover to the higher level of care. And that also includes getting the patient out, which might involve an overland movement. It might involve hoisting you know, onto a helicopter. Um, so I think that the, the carryover from that into what I do now is pretty much everything that you do in the military is mission planning and, and risk mitigation. So you, like that's why I said I always ask every patient, like, what is it you want to be able to do? That's the mission because that's their value. That's what they want to do. I start with that and it's like, what's the progression? What's the way that we can get there responsibly and safely acknowledging that you can't get there by no risk. If you want to prepare like an athlete for a sport that's coming off a of surgery, if you're overly risk averse in your rehabilitation, you're actually not preparing them for what they need to do. And even though they might not get hurt on your watch, you're deferring that risk onto somebody else because it's like, yeah, like I don't want to, I don't want to do anything dangerous while you're here. So like go play. And now maybe that that athlete strength coach or athletic trainer or even sport coach, you know, now like they assume the risk because you were like, yeah, the athlete's ready when they're not. So you need to be, you need to assume some level of risk. Like even for the job that we had, like we're preparing for a dangerous job and we're doing dangerous things. So like you can't prepare for a parachute mission by not parachuting and training, but we also had, you know, 
safety protocols and things that we called ORM or operational risk, risk mitigation in training where it's like we had a certain wind limit where if on a training jump, the winds exceeded, I think it was 25 knots on a water jump and 18 knots on a land jump on the surface, we, we wouldn't do those jumps because like, yes, presumably on a mission, you might have to exceed those wind limits to, to rescue somebody. But in training, is it really worth potentially compromising somebody either temporarily or permanently for something you could do the next day? Like right? an injury. So for a yeah, jump injury for yourself right. and then putting you out of the game. Yeah. Or even, I mean, even look at like, you know, like more of a, like a tactical scenario, like the, 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 if you want to make your training really realistic, you would have force on force, which is you've got people doing the mission and then an opposition force. Yes. Acting as the adversary, Shooting you you would do that. You would do that with with yeah. you would do li like with live bullets because that's the most realistic. Obviously, it's dumb because you know the idea is you want to make mistakes in a controlled environment and learn. And even if you do everything perfectly, you could still get shot, right? So you're not going to use live bullets in training because people could get hurt or killed unnecessarily, even though it's the most realistic. So how do you make it realistic without you know permanently disabling people? Use munitions or basically like fake paintball bullets, you know, that are modified for military right. firearms. So like, yeah, if you get hit with it, you're still like, ah, this stings. I should, like, I need to go move somewhere else, but you can live to fight another day and you can learn from your, mm -hmm. from your mistakes. So like, again, even munitions, like there's a risk of that. It's more risky than using blanks or going bang, bang, you know, right. with your mouth when you fire a fake weapon. So it's all about like, how do you find that sweet spot between like kind of risk and, and reward? And I think that's really like what we do in medicine, I mean, and e even with, you know, not that we're like going to go here, but like, and I'm not taking any position on like the pandemic, but it's the same exact thing. Like everything that you do from a public health standpoint has a trade-off, good, good and bad. Like, how do you manage really that? Like, how do you not, like, if you look at like what's going on in some places, like like zero COVID has huge trade-offs. If you're obviously very cal cavalier about it and don't take any precautions, people are harmed by that too. The real conversation is always about where are the boundaries, right? And that's always the interesting part about any discussion because- the extremes, if you look at the extremes, they're always 100%. like, it's like, yeah, that's like kind of dumb, you know, and that's, it's very clear, like the extremes are not good in most situations, but where, you know, where are the trade-offs and how do you navigate that? And that's like, that's really like the essence of what I did in the military. And then what I think I do in medicine, what any medical provider does, because no matter what, like even things that you think are good, if you do too much of it, it's not good. Right. Whether it's a medication and exercise. I mean, you could do too much exercise, you know, you could do too much of the same exercise. So Everything is trade-offs, and that's the, that's the, my, the, my big takeaway from the military. And learning how to triage and prioritize. For sure. Thank you to First Form for sponsoring this episode of the podcast. And I'd like to highlight one of their favorite products. Well, one of our favorite products, especially Shane. He, I can't get him away from my Microfactor. And Microfactor is a complete daily nutrient pack, super easy. It's 30 packs, and it has antioxidants, a multivitamin, a probiotic, CoQ10, essential fatty acids, and they have a fruit and veggie formula. Really, really easy. Throw it in your bag, throw it in your purse, throw it in your fanny pack, which yes, that's exactly what I do. And uh, you're good to go. Head on over to firstform.com slash Dr. Lion. Depending on your order size, you can get free shipping. Head on over to firstform.com slash Dr. Lion. Love this company. I love this product. It's really easy to travel with and to keep. And listen, we don't get the same nutrients that we used to, you know, for all the various reasons with soy depletion and perhaps our food in isn't as fresh. I think that this is extremely valuable. So head on over to firstform.com slash Dr. Lion and throw Microfactor in your cart. I'd like to take a moment to thank Inside Tracker 
Go to insidetracker.com slash Dr. Lion for understanding and knowing your blood work. That's right. Inside Tracker allows you to further examine what is going on in your body. And right now, they are still running this special. So it was originally for Black Friday, Cyber Monday, but they've agreed to extend that for you guys. You can get $200 off Inside Tracker's Ultimate Plan or 34% off the entire store. So just head on over to insidetracker.com slash Dr. Lion for my exclusive discount. I love this because listen, we're talking all about health and fitness and the reality is you shouldn't be working uphill. If you wanna know what your blood markers are, testosterone, estrogen, inflammatory markers, any of the things, then it's better to test and not guess and see what's going on. So head on over to insidetracker.com slash Dr. Lion. I'm so grateful for them to make this available to you for $200 off the ultimate plan or 34% off the rest of the store. So very gracious and thank you. And I just wanna say this, most people don't choose pararescue. <laughs> I wanna highlight that just it takes a special kind of person and typically, as you had mentioned, those are individuals that are what Tim Grover would say, cleaners, right? I don't know if you're familiar. I know Tim Grover, yeah. yeah. Um, and he would, he would definitely define that as, as being a cleaner. And I'm curious as to what you're doing now and that is driving you forward. Yeah, I mean, it's one of the hard things that you probably have, have experienced or, you know, working with operators is like when you do something that you work with that exceptional group of people and, and just have that kind of job where, with that level of intensity and, and focus and people dedicated to the mission, it's like when you're not doing it anymore, like you have to do something else to find purpose. I mean, I think, you know, and you, you you need other challenges to satisfy yourself. I think like running my own business is definitely, you know, yeah. <laughs> that's like, that's enough of a challenge where I'm not like really wanting more. You know, I, I, I never want to be totally uh, comfortable, but you also don't want to be like so overwhelmed with stuff. I think that like where I'm at now, like I've got a good, a good amount of stress, you know, um, I, I, I work with a great team. Like I've got two other founders of the business, two partners, and then we've grown our team. And, you know, because we're in charge, like we get to pick cool people right. to work with us. And so- I am around like very, very like motivated, like mission driven people who are like just great at their craft and and, and value what they do. Um, and I'm around those people every day. So like that's that's helpful. And then like obviously like having a family is another challenge and like being a being a father and that's like a new learning experience. Mm -hmm. And I'm like that's really good on the job training, right? Because there's no real pamphlet for <laughs> how to do that well. No. Um, and then, you know, it's like and because of because of what I've done previously, I just don't I don't want to be the kind of person that's like, oh, like I used to do all this cool stuff. And they look at me and they're like, well, you, d you did that, you know? So I'm not like necessarily trying to always like get better per se, but I want to like maintain a certain standard of what I think is like respectable for myself and just how I, how I portray myself. And, you know, I mean, I do, I do enjoy, like there's certain things that, that I enjoy. Like I enjoy like actually going out and like sprinting up a hill. I enjoy some of that stuff in training because it's, you know, like you're, there's sometimes no better feeling of just like being totally uninhibited and doing something as fast as you can. I don't really enjoy like at, you know, one of the days I work in the city, getting home at, you know, like nine o'clock at night and putting the, the incline on my treadmill up to 30% and putting on a 50 pound rock and like doing that for an hour like that, like that's actually not enjoyable, but I, I enjoy that it's, it's helping me so that the things that I really like derive pleasure from, right. whether it's like maybe like going on, you know, going on a ski trip or, like hiking with my wife, 
like that I'm never going to be physically limited. Like the limiting factor in any of those things is going to be my my ability to demonstrate that skill. It's not going to be because I have a physical limitation. Mm -hmm. So there's kind of like a, a greater purpose to why I do certain things. And it's also like, you know, yeah, like this sucks, but sometimes you do things, do things that suck and it's like, it's, it should be a part of your life. I mean, it shouldn't be all you do, but you know, like I'm also sometimes driven by like negative reinforcement. <laughs> and it's like, if you don't do this, this is what you're, what you're going to be. Do you want to be that? And right. so I'm not saying that's like necessarily healthy, but I think I have enough things in my life to like keep me growth minded between like working and family. And then just the, the desire to like not deteriorate and still be able to do all the things that, that I enjoy and like even represent the, the, the community that I was once in well, yeah, you know, because there's I love that standard that. to uphold too. So there is a standard yeah. to uphold. The did physical therapy come first or did the military come first? How did you decide to go into physical therapy? So when I was an undergrad, you know, in college, originally my intent was to apply to go to medical school and I had gone pretty far in that process. I was pre-med, had taken all the prereqs, taken the MCATs, even interviewed at medical schools. But in the midst of that process, I found out about pararescue and I'd always been intrigued by like special operations community. And I just felt like I had kind of like an easy life and was never really challenged. I mean, the hardest thing I had to do was like go to school and get good grades, which is not hard. I never really felt like, you know, I got to know myself through adversity. Yeah. Um, and so when I found out about pararescue, I'm like, oh, this is like, this is a hard job, but it's also a job that like really resonated because the emphasis was more on like, you know, on the medical side of things. And I was in the midst of you know, entering a medical career. And so I kind of like researched it. And the more I learned about it, the more I was like, ah, you know, if I don't do this now, I'm going to be the age that I am now. I'm going to be in my forties and regret that I didn't do it. Mm. And so I withdrew myself from the the medical school process and then went into, you know, went into the air force, did pararescue. And, you know, in the midst, I knew that I didn't want to make a career out of pararescue, but, and I wanted to get back into something medical, but I did, you know, pretty extensive medical training in, in pararescue, like you know, did ambulance ride-alongs, worked in hospitals and realized that I didn't necessarily want to do more of that, that I wanted to focus more on like the the preventative side of things and the, and the performance side of things. And even though like I, you know, I work with people that are like have pathology sometimes, it's just different than I think if I'd gone like the MD route, like for sports medicine, you're either going to be a physiatrist or you're going to be a surgeon. And to me, like the physical therapy where I could also combine it with strength and conditioning and more just, you know, um, like fitness type initiatives, right. having gone through the medical experience with pararescue and seen, like just seen, the, looked under the curtain of, of medicine and working in hospitals, I just felt like physical therapy was a better fit for me. So I'm actually glad that, you know, cause it's hard when you're even 21 years old to know what you want to do the rest of your life. And, you know, frankly, like if you go to medical school after college, once you go, you're pretty invested. Like it's kind of hard to like go to medical school and be like, well, it's not for me. I'm going to do something else because you've invested so much. And it's also, you know, you got to pay back your loans and it's like a lucrative career relative to maybe what else you could be doing. So I think it was good to like, just have a couple of years of like real life experience to kind of know what I really wanted to do. So I'm, I'm grateful for Pararescue in a variety of ways because it was a great experience in itself, but also because like, it just bought me some time to figure out what I really wanted to do. And so you know, like, I'm glad, I, I just think that, I mean, like I, I would have made it work, but I don't think medical school would have been or going that route would have been the right thing because I just, I think physical therapy with all the things that I'm passionate about, it allows me to, to, to hit on all those things, maybe more than being a physician would have. Yeah. It's, um, it's a really cool career, what you chose. I mean, it's a really interesting interface from pararescue. So pararescue, you had to be a medic yeah. as well. Yes. Um, and you know, my husband is a, was a medic on, in the SEAL teams and 
And he, you know, they have a lot of respect for pararescue. They they need you guys. It's so helpful. And also a certain level of intensity yeah. and physicalness. You're jumping out of a lot of planes, um, presumably, and all, always doing all those other things. Yep. I'm curious, had you or have you gotten injured and had to rehab yourself based on all the things that you're talking about, um, you know, position and power, capacity and strength. Have you had to go through something like that? I have, yeah. And that's also like a very obviously like illuminating experience because I, I, you always think that you're like compassionate and somewhat, or, and somewhat empathetic, but when it's not you, you're kind of like, it's, it's, it's an abstraction, you know? Um, and so I, I, I had a back surgery two years ago. Um, I actually had a, a laminotomy, which is like a partial mm. laminectomy where, you know, I had stenosis, which is basically a narrowing of the spinal canal that was pressing on a nerve. And I got to the point where like, after my son was born, well, I, I had even two years before my surgery, I had an episode where like, basically I had this like really, really, you know, piercing leg pain. And it got to the point where I couldn't really stand or walk for more than a couple of blocks. Like I was literally having to Uber home from work because I couldn't walk from Solace to the yeah. one subway stop a couple blocks away. It was like a 10 minute walk and I like literally couldn't do it. So I was like taking Ubers home and I'm like, all right, like I've got to get this checked out. So I, I actually made an appointment to get an MRI, but before that appointment, I had like collapsed in the shower. Oh my god! And like, I literally had to like crawl back into bed. Um, it, got, it was so bad, like I couldn't, couldn't go to the bathroom. My wife had to hold a bottle while I pissed in it, you know? And so I ended up going to the emergency room that day and it was, I'm not gonna name the hospital that I was at, but it was like not the best experience. And I felt like, they were pretty dismissive of like a healthy person walking in and being that debilitated. Um, but I ended up at that point changing, changing my like health insurance and my <laughs> healthcare providers and going more in a, in a different system. And, you know, it was revealed that I, I, I had this stenosis and they ended up um, doing a series of injections. Like initially that bought me like a little bit of relief that in the time. Uh, yeah, it was, it was a cortisone injections like epidurals just cause the nerve was so inflamed. Mm. It was either that or the time. It bought me a little bit of relief, but ultimately two years after that episode where I went to the emergency room, my, it was right after my first, my son was born. Um, the same kind of pain came back where like, I couldn't stand for very long. And then, you know, I, I, I knew at that point that like I was a surgical candidate. So just because I have a network of surgeons that I that I know and work with, I had a couple of people look at my, look at my MRI. You know, they knew my symptoms and the progression of it symptomatically. And they were like, yeah, you know, you're, you're definitely a candidate, like here's the problem, you know, cause like you see the MRI and it's like, this nerve is basically being constricted and it's a, it's a physical, like until that pressure's taken off the nerve, mm -hmm. like you're not gonna feel better. You can't exercise your way out of it. I tried doing that. Um, it's just, it's pathology, it needs to be fixed. Adjust. And so um, it's like, yeah, you're, you know, you know, it's not an emergency. It just depends on like how much you can do. And at that point I'm like, forget like training and doing all the physical things I wanna do. Like I am, having trouble like living my life. Like right. it's compromising my ability to work, to be a father. So it's it's like, you know, there's never a good time to have surgery, especially like, I think it was two months after my son was born, but I'm just gonna do it, you know? And, and so I did it and it fixed the problem. I mean, um, it, but it was, it you know, I think it was a combination of physically demanding job with the military. Also just being a dumbass about my training when I was younger and just like chasing arbitrary numbers, ego lifting, you know, meeting certain milestones and then being like, okay, I can deadlift 500. Let's try to do 550. And, but it's, and I never had like, what was my real mission? Like, what's, what's the purpose of this? Hmm. And you know, if my younger self could, or my, myself now could time yeah. travel to yeah. my younger self, my younger self probably still wouldn't listen. You know, I mean, I work with like high school athletes now and like 
I tell them to do stuff, but I'm also realistic. And I know that like, I'm going to get the most change with them when they're with me. And I might be a little bit more hands-on with them than with an adult because like the only thing they're going to do to help themselves is to get manual therapy for me. I can tell them to modify their training or do mobility stuff on their own, but like they're not, they're going to do what I did when I was 17. They're going to do like <laughs> 10 cents a bench every day. And you know, they're going to just, they're going to, they're going to ego lift and do what like high school boys do. So I don't even know if I could share that with my younger self, if I would have listened. Right. But yeah, it's like, and that's just, you just learn through experience, you learn through mistakes, but it was definitely, yeah, like kind of an enlightening experience to go through that because you reflect on all the stuff you could have done. You're like, wow, that was, that was pretty dumb, you know? Um, but now, like, I don't, like I said, my, my goal now is not like I want to run, a, run at a certain speed or lift a certain amount of weight. It's like, I just want to be able to keep doing the things that I'm doing and not, not decline because I really enjoy the things that I do and I don't want those to be taken away from the, me. And there was a time, you know, when there was a lot of uncertainty, like before the surgery, when I couldn't do the things that I enjoyed. Yeah, that's scary. And the surgery gave me a second chance. And so I don't want to compromise that again by doing dumb stuff. Yeah. Um, you know, how does somebody who is listening to this uh, kind of separate the concept of, e you know, lifting for ego and actually setting goals of knowing that they're getting stronger and, you know, realistic goals that are perhaps going to have a better risk reward? How, how does someone even I, I mean, think about this that? Is, it's a simple answer, but it's difficult to actually implement is that if you just stick to like, I'm going to be consistent and like every, however, every week I'm going to, I'm going to show up and I'm going to put weight on the bar no matter how much weight it is, like you're going, you're going to progress. And, and you know, you're going to get, I mean, it's easier to progress in the beginning when you're not near right. your ceiling. Like, look, if you're, you know, if so, if you look at like an elite power lifter that squats a thousand pounds, like it's much harder for that person to add five pounds to their squat than, right. you know, someone who's never squatted before. So, you know, there's a point where like, and I think you just learn this through experience that like it, it gets really hard to get stronger in a way where you can manifest that with weight on the bar because- mm -hmm you're closer to what your ceiling is. But yeah, I, I think the more you can reshift your focus to like, it's more about like habits and the process than it is about, and I'm, you know, there's nothing wrong with a concrete goal. If you're like, yeah, I want to run the marathon under four hours. Like that's totally fine. Just make, just make sure that the goal is something that you really value and that it makes sense. And then it's, it's aligned with maybe some of your longer term goals like longevity and health. Because sometimes what you want in the moment maybe is at odds with what you want mm. later on. And like, even in my own life after the surgery, like there's certain things that like in the abstract, I'd be willing to maybe give up some comfort to keep doing them. Like, I don't want to stop. Like I still play tennis at a pretty high level where I'm like sprinting and changing direction. Like if my pure focus was on longevity and feeling good, I probably would not do that. Or I would not play at the level that I'm playing. And I might like play more doubles. I might, right. there might be certain balls that I don't run for. I might just hit casually and not play, you know, play points with high level players, but it's an important enough part of my life that I derive joy from it that yeah. like, at least right now, I don't want to stop doing it, recognizing that, you know, it might take a, but like, I've definitely stopped really, really heavy lifting and ego lifting because that I immediately know, like I get immediate feedback, like you don't feel good when you do that. Mm. Whereas some of the other stuff, it's like might catch up later yeah. on, but at least I'm, I think I'm somewhat prudent enough and not stupid enough to the things that like I get immediate negative feedback mm. from, I don't do anymore. Whereas in the past, it's like, yeah, I feel like crap. I deadlifted, you know, 500 pounds for a double today, but I'm going to try to get 505 the next week. And like my back would feel like crap for a week. And then in a week it would feel better and I'd do it again. And my back would feel like crap for a week. And I kind of kept doing that because, you know, it was just, it was just like 
it was, I don't know if it was ego or whatever it was, but yeah, my short-term goal was not aligned with like what I really want, but you don't know what you really want until you're older anyway. So it's, <laughs> you know, like some of the stuff you just, yeah. you can't, you can't, there's no shortcut. You just have to learn. Right. And uh, yes, you have to learn. And oftentimes the hard, the hard way, way. Yeah. <laughs> right? And luckily yeah. like for me, it wasn't, yeah. the surgery worked and it wasn't like that. It wasn't that bad an experience. Like I could have never fully recovered from that. And you're not saying that someone should just go to the gym and go through the motions. They should put in effort and it should be challenging. Yes. What I'm hearing you say is it doesn't need to be these massive, extremely heavy lifts that uh, potentially someone has no business doing. That, yeah, because I mean, no lift is good or bad. It's like, are you prepared to do it, right? Great point. Um, yep. So like even like Olympic lifting, like that's a controversial topic. Like I'm not... I'm agnostic. I'm not for or against it, but why is it controversial? Because it's controversial it. because some people are like, it's the like it's the best thing and it's the best way to generate power. And like if you're not doing it, you're depriving yourself of your athletic potential. And some people say, well, it's like really time consuming to teach and do well, and you don't need to do it. Really, it's like if you want to do it, there's certain foundational things that you need to have to be able to do it well and do it safely. Mm -hmm. And if you don't have those things, you should work on the foundational elements before you do it, assuming it makes sense to even do it at all. But I think to your point, I'm not telling people like don't train with intent, but as an example, like for me at this point, I don't, I don't back squat anymore with a bar because if I did do it, I just don't do well with it, but I can do like a rear foot elevated split squat with, I mean, over a hundred pound dumbbells in each hand and a weight vest and train with a ton of intent and do like three reps. Really and, and like, yeah. I, I mean, I'm, my legs are getting smoked. And I'm getting that, you know, neural drive and recruitment that I would get with a three RM back squat, but with much less just spinal discomfort. So I still train with intent. I still lift heavy, but in things that I know aren't going to make me feel bad. Um, you know, for a long time, like machines were demonized as like they're non-functional. Like, look, if you can get on a leg press and leg press a lot of weight and like that doesn't hurt your back, but squatting does, there's nothing wrong with doing a leg press because like most people aren't only training on machines. Like even if I trained on a machine, I do some machine-based training for variety now, but I'm also doing like, you know, plyometrics and I'm sprinting and I'm doing, I'm playing tennis. I'm doing things that like require me to not be stabilized. So yeah, if my goal is like muscular recruitment and just, just general strength, there's nothing wrong with training on a machine. But for a very long time, that was demonized. And I think that like for longevity's sake, machines actually have a huge place because the load in a lot of cases is stabilized for you, you're minimizing some of that spinal load. Um, and you can train like, for example, your legs with a ton of intent without, you know, this, cause typically when people fail in like a back squat, it's their back that fails, not their, or their, their midline position, not their legs. Whereas like a rear foot elevated split squat or a machine based leg exercise, your legs are what fail, not your, so it's like, what do you, what do you want to be the limiting factor? You know, again, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with back squats. It's just that like, why are you, what's, what, what's the, why are you doing it? Like what's, What's the goal? What's the intent? And everything has, you know, an upside and a downside. If there's a way for you to, you know, achieve the same intent, the same end game with less downside, why would you not do it? It's the equivalent of a, you know, the military analogy. Like, yes, we train to parachute um, under oxygen and be under canopy for, you know, a half hour. But if we can air land next to the patient and like we can do that safely and there's no reason to not do it. Why would we free fall parachute to get there? Because that's much more risky, right? You know? Um, so there's a place for free fall parachuting when it's the only way to get somewhere. There's sometimes a back squat might be the quote unquote oh best God. way for you to, to achieve something, but very seldom is it the only way. And I think 
the exercise world is so dogmatic and they're so emotionally attached to exercises that they portray it as like, this is the only way to do something when th there's so many ways to do, to, to do most things people want to be able to do. That, first of all, that is really, that's important, you know, because when people ask, you know, as a physician, I'll say, well, what are some of the, the things that you should be able to do? And I've always said compound movements, and perhaps that's not the best advice. It's, you know, what is the end goal? What is the stimulus needed? And the the motion is squatting or lunging, but the the way in which an individual gets there is yeah. totally variable, can be very variable. Yeah, like even now, like we have at our facility, we've got um one of those like flywheel resistance things. Yep. And I mean- you can put a bunch of flywheels on and get a ton of resistance. And it, it's like the squat you do on it is a belt squat. I'll do squats on that because my legs can, you know, get the stimulus, but because the, the belt around, I'm wearing the belt around my waist, there's no spinal compression and I can train what I want, which is like really, really focus on my legs. And I still do things to maintain spinal strength and, you know, maintain, you know, stiffness in my, in my spine for when, when you do need that. But I might do like a really heavy carry where I'm not lifting it from the floor. I'm just like lifting it out of the rack and I'm doing a carry. So I'm still getting that spinal stiffness and training that without having to like lift it off the floor because by doing all the lunge variations and, and belt squat variations, I'm getting that like strength off the floor without the spinal risk. So, you know, I've learned through through failure and through pain, like how to piece these things together. But yeah, to your point, like you, it's arbitrary. Like what you, there's so many ways to to achieve some of those goals. But people, again, it's like, everyone knows what do you squat? What do you bench? Right. Um, and so there's like, people have preconceived ideas in their head as to what it means to do a certain amount of weight and it puts you in a certain category. But at the end of the day, you know, no one gives a shit. Like you're not, it's not, you're not going to like find a better spouse part. You're not going to be like, well, you know, I was going to marry this person, but. My squat only, was only yeah, 250 like, that's, pounds. That's in your own head, including me. Like at one point it was in my own, like no one cares. You think they do, but no one cares. Nobody cares. Yeah. What would you say in terms of the interface? You know, you're talking a lot about training and you're also talking about injury prevention and risk ratio. Where is the interface between strength training or uh, physical training and uh, physical therapy? It's a great question. I mean, it's a very arbitrary distinction because I think that a good, whatever that looks like training plan, like is kind of the best injury risk mitigation type thing you could do. And that, like, you're going to get injured if you play a sport. I mean, this whole thing with like, ACL prevention, like you could be on the best program in the world, people are gonna tear their ACLs. I think there's better things you could do to prepare people, but we don't know the answer to that question as to like how to totally prevent injuries. But I think the line between like physical therapy and training or fitness, it's more political and financial than it is practical. Cause like, look, if once something is like, is medicalized, only certain people that are licensed can provide that service. And there's a lot of money in those services, right? And like when you're a medical provider, depending on your business model, like you can take insurance. So that basically hides the cost of that service from people. So it's like, oh, like, so I can do exercise with a physical therapist, but my insurance is paying for it and it's free versus working out with a trainer and it's not. Now, I think ultimately it comes down to like, do you have the knowledge to help this person with their problem? And so, you know, like, I don't think that like personal trainers should be working with somebody that's like one day post-op, but there's also a lot of physical therapists that are maybe like, they're working with somebody five months after an ACL surgery when their 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 rehabilitation should look much more like quote unquote training or strength and conditioning. And they are not educated on how to do that very well. And they're doing things that are too low level that I think don't impose enough risk or systemic stress on that athlete. And so they're 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 not they're not adequately rehabbing that person. So at like anything else, at the extreme end of the continuum, 
it's clear where the boundaries are, but in practice and where things like really matter, I don't know where that boundary is. I mean, I would tell anybody like, don't, don't break the law, don't violate like a practice act or a scope of practice. But I, I personally think that like, I value competition. I think people should have multiple options, multiple price points to be able to like to achieve their goals. And like, let, you know, with, with certain stipulations in place, like let the market sort it out. Like I, there's a lot of physical therapists who are very threatened by trainers and like, oh, trainers shouldn't be able to, to do this with a person. They shouldn't be able to tell, you know, a person to foam roll because that's soft tissue therapy. Or, you know, if they see a video of a personal trainer rubbing a massage stick on somebody, they're like, that's dangerous. Like, it's not dangerous. It's just that you want to monopolize mm. that service. And it's like, if, if, if somebody can do that better than me, then I didn't do my job well enough. And unless they're breaking, breaking some laws, like I just need to do better. But professions, when they work in packs and to look at it like, oh, we got to stop everybody else from doing what we do so they can monopolize market share. So I think the answer to your question is it's really much more like political and financially driven. In practice, it's very, very messy where that line is. But I think what it comes down to is people should be very transparent about what 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 they're knowledgeable about and not false advertise to a client or a patient. And then, you know, ultimately like clients and patients have to be consumers of cuz it's which is very hard because everyone's going to act like they're the answer to your problem when maybe they're not. Right. You know. Right. And then do people do you think that people should depend on word of mouth? How how does it work to be able to vet uh, aside from trial and error? You know, there's a few things that can happen. Individuals can work with a fitness professional and not really make uh, gains or improvements. We see this with a lot of the body composition practice uh, patients in the practice where perhaps they love their trainer, they've been working with their trainer, but they're not generating enough stimulus or their body composition isn't changing. You know, how does somebody determine what good physical therapy looks like, where the interface is with good... And you might not have the answer to this, yeah. but I, I, I just... You know, I, I get a lot of these types of questions. How can somebody figure it's that out? It's really hard. Even within the field, there's debate about like what is good, right? Like what does good look like? If you're not in the field, I mean, to, to be able to vet who's good and who's not, it's very difficult. Whether this is physical, I mean, now that like I'm a homeowner, right? I don't live in the city anymore. It's like- who, Congratulations. When you need, <laughs> but when you need like a, a plumber, like you can go, you can Google plumber and go on Yelp and read- a thousand reviews of, of 20 different companies, or you could just like, you know, you have a network of people you trust, like your neighbor or your friend who you think like, this is like a reasonable person. You're like, do you like your plumber? And like, that's yeah. that's how I get stuff outside of my own sort of like, you know, Zone knowledge base, right? Yeah. Yeah. And then, I mean, if, if you have a bad experience and you find somebody else, but I think that for, for a lot of things, if you, if you have people that you trust and think are reasonable, that's a good place to start. Um, but yeah, with, with healthcare, it's very difficult. I mean, that's one thing that I, I try to do for my patients is help them navigate the health because I can't help everybody. I think like, there's people that they walk in the office and I'm like, yeah, like you need to see a surgeon or a specialist or even someone like you. And you know, th the next question is, well, who do I see? And rather than being like, yeah, you go figure it out on your own, it's like I have people that that I trust that I vetted. That admittedly, like, they maybe they're not perfect, but I think they're. I can do a better job of vetting those people, that network than sure. the patient can. And so that's a lot of what I do for people is like, all right, like go see this surgeon. They're great for what I think you need. And at least it's a starting point for them. If they decide they want to go somewhere else, they mm. can versus going on the internet and trying to navigate all that information. You know, the other thing that I think is important because you brought up the point about like the trainer and body comp. 
a lot of people, and to be fair, like, because trainers have a very hard job because sure. you're with people three hours a week. For and sure. it's like, people ask the world of you. It's like, I want to like change my body. It's like, well, I have three hours a week. I can tell you what to do when you're not with me. But if you don't do it, like you're not going to make body comp changes if all you do is exercise three hours a week and you don't change other things. And when the trainer is not with you, now there's a certain amount of persuasion a trainer can have to be better at their job or worse, but like they can't be with you 24 hours a day. A lot of people, and this is even including with me, like I could literally create a YouTube channel and be like, if your back hurts, like here's what you should do. And if your knee hurts, here's what you should do. Or just here's a general wellness program. And it wouldn't work for everybody, but it would work pretty well. But it's, again, it's not, not like people come to me mainly for accountability because when they spend their money and time, they're like forced to do something. I have people that I work with where I'm like, they, they come in the first visit. I'm like, yeah, just do these things at home and you, I think you'll be fine. They're like, I don't need to come back. And I'm like, I don't think you need to. And they come back and they're willing to spend their time and their money because they won't do that thing on their own. Right. And like with a trainer, a lot of people go to a trainer for the accountability piece to do the thing that they won't do on their own. So a lot of people, they're not going to a trainer to like change their body comp. They're doing it to just like get that minimum effective dose of exercise to be just a healthy person, maybe not have the body they want because otherwise they wouldn't do it. Mm -hmm. Now, when you, when you get into like optimization and you have higher level goals, then it's a little bit of a different story. But a lot of what I do is just reassuring people it's okay to move and helping with the accountability piece. It's very rare that I get to like truly utilize everything I know on my expertise. And I think that's, it's important to admit that because like a lot of what I think people like you and I do, it's not really that it's, it's not hard from a knowledge standpoint. It's hard from a connection and a behavioral change standpoint. Yeah. And that's, that's a huge part of it. I think that's underemphasized, you know, like practitioners always argue about the 1% stuff, but that's not like why we're not reaching people. It's not right. because we're not smart enough. It's because we don't know how to get people to do simple things. And that's very hard. It is. And also connecting and knowing that they're cared about and their best interests at yeah. heart is really, really important. And I think that, that there's a, a space between practitioner and provider, at least oftentimes in the medical field, or um, maybe individuals don't feel listened to. Um, That's a really great point. And I think like it's, it's probably hard for me to separate my outcomes from other physical therapists because I have a generally a different business model. Like I spend an hour one on one with everybody. Whereas in a different business model that maybe is like in network with insurance, just because of the constraints they're under, they might only get 10 minutes with people. So no matter how good that person is, they're very, very constrained by that business model. Whereas like most people, when they're in a medical provider's office are used to being rushed. Hmm. So people, when they come in to see me, they're like, I know we don't have a lot of time. Like, here's what I want to tell you. And I'm like, right. we actually have plenty of time. Like, tell me whatever you think we need to know. Like, so how are your kids? And, so, and, so, and no. they feel like yeah, listened yeah. to. And so some of the outcomes that I get that might be superior to maybe a different provider, maybe aren't because like I'm better per se, but because I get I, I can actually listen to, I have the time to listen to them. So there's so many variables in this. It's hard to separate like what's, what's really, wor what's the difference maker and what's not. And maybe it's not one thing, maybe it's the combination or the interaction, but yeah, like just that, that the environment that you cultivate plays so much into the outcomes you get. It's not just about like what you do with the person. Yeah. What kind of patients do you see typically? Luckily I see a range of people. I mean, I don't, I don't want to see like one kind. I don't want to work with like only baseball players or only athletes <laughs> right. or only operators. Like I see a range. I mean, I'll say the majority Nobody of Nobody only wants to work with operators. Yeah. Just kidding. No, Just kidding, guys. I would see a range. It's like, it's, <laughs> yeah. you know, mostly like general population, but like active, active adults who like have jobs and family lives, but they still, you know, they, they play a recreational sport or they're like fitness enthusiasts, but they, maybe they don't compete per se. And then, you know, there's 
professional athletes, there's kids, there's elderly. So the the wheelhouse is the like the general population, but luckily I have a lot of variety. And I think that having that variety makes me better at treating specialty populations. I think that if you only treat one kind of patient, you get very, you can get complacent. Like you think that you're like an expert in that one thing, but people are people. And the more different types of people you see, you see patterns that maybe transcend that specific population. So that is very well said. And I always say that a good provider can recognize disease pathology or injury pathology, but an exceptional provider definitely recommend, recognizes archetypes of people. Yes. Yeah. Um, and I think that that's, that's very, very wise. Where can people find you? Um, our website is uh, resilientperformance.com. Social media, the handle, the Instagram is resilientppt. And then my own, the only like um, social media that I'm active on individually, not like with my, you know, yeah, with resilient is um is on Twitter. I'm greenfeetpt. Um, and I'll and, link everything. Yeah, and then and then you know anything else you could probably find through our website. Great. Yeah. Thank you so much. You know, I really think that you're exceptional in multiple domains. Very humble, very capable, very driven, and very to the point. And that's incredibly valuable. So thank you so much for spending your time with me. Appreciate it. It went by pretty quick. <laughs> yeah. The Dr. Gabrielle Lyon podcast and YouTube are for general information purposes only and do not constitute the practice of medicine, nursing, or other professional health care services including the giving of medical advice, and no patient-doctor relationship is formed. The use of information on this podcast, YouTube, or materials linked from the podcast or YouTube is at the user's own risk. The content of this podcast is not intended to substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Users should not disregard or delay in obtaining medical advice for any medical condition they may have and should seek the assistance of their healthcare professional for any such conditions. This is purely for entertainment and educational purposes only.